Well, let me invite you to turn to the book of Habakkuk this morning. Uh, Habakkuk, this wonderful little prophet. Uh, if you're having trouble finding Habakkuk, you'll find it right after Nahum, okay? So uh, that should help, perhaps. Or if you want to use the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 785. All right? It is for books like Habakkuk that your Bible has the table of contents. So uh, feel free to go ahead and use that if you need to. I'm excited to uh, begin this little series and this little book. It's, um, in my studies over the last month or so, has been a, a profoundly impactful on my life, as I, I knew it would be, being God's Word, but uh, it's impacted me in ways that I did not anticipate, and I hope and trust it will do so for you as well. So Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, hear now the Word of God. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than lepers, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press on, press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward, they gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. Our Father, we are as we are today as we are every week, I trust, at this time, thankful for your word. For it is through your word that you reveal yourself to us. You speak to us through your word. And yet we have a difficult task this morning. For we, we opened a book that was written 2,600 years ago in a, a nation about to be conquered. And yet there are truths here that are so helpful for us. Truths that you want us to understand, principles you want us to apply to our lives, that we may love you more fully and follow you more faithfully. And so we come and we ask for help. I believe in my heart, Father, that there are some here who are in desperate need today for these words. 
Will you in your kindness to them not, will you allow them, please, to hear and be changed? Do a good work in all of us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It was in the year 1850 that Alan Gardner, an English missionary who started the Patagonia Mission in Chile, sailed, set sail to start a new mission among the Fugian Indians in South America. These Indians had been encountered by none other than Charles Darwin 20 years earlier. In fact, Darwin, Darwin, on his famous voyage on the Beagle, would write about this Indian tribe. I quote him, It is completely useless to send missionaries to savages such as the Fuginos, probably, for they are probably the lowest example of the human race. Well, perhaps inspired by those words, Gardner says, I'm going. And he took a friend and his medical doctor, uh, Richard Williams, with him and five other missionaries they left for home to take the gospel to this Indian tribe. They landed upon a small remote island and their ship that dropped them off left promising to return in four months for their resupply. It did not. Months passed and the ship did not return. There was no rescue. There was no resupply. And one by one, These seven missionaries died. They died from starvation. The last to die would be Alan Gardner, who would die on September 6, 1851. Twenty days later, on September 26, the resupply finally arrived. They found Gardner's body on the beach along with Dr. Williams. Each had their journals with them. Dr. Williams' last journal entry a few days before he died reads like this. I am happy day and night, hour by hour. Asleep or awake, I am happy beyond words and the poor compass of language to tell. God indeed is about my bed. Let all my beloved ones at home rest assured that I was happy beyond expression the night I wrote these lines and would not have changed situations with any living man. That heaven and love and Christ are in my heart. Gardner wrote in his last entry, Psalm 34, verse 10, this man who was starving to death penned these lines, young lions do lack and suffer hunger, yet those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Underneath that psalm, he wrote Friday, great and marvelous are the loving kindness of my gracious God unto me. I neither hunger nor thirst, though five days without food. Marvelous loving kindness to me, a sinner, your affectionate brother in Christ, Alan Gardner. The question that I think these men's journals raise is how how do you write of happiness beyond expression as you are dying? How do you write of the loving kindness of God as you starve to death while you have left home and kin in order to take the gospel to a heathen and savage people? In obedience to God, you go. And you starve to death because the ship does not get back. And how at that time do you write your last words upon this earth of the loving kindness of a marvelous God? 
I, I understand the emotion of fear. I under, would understand the emotion of confusion. I would understand anger, but inexpressible happiness? I think that is foreign to us, is it not? Of course, Gardner is not the first to experience such joy in face of disaster, trouble, and trial. He shared this experience with a man who lived long before him, the man who penned this book before us. His name is Habakkuk. I want you to note how Habakkuk ends. That's going to be helpful for us in our study. So turn to chapter 3, if you will, and consider verse 17. This is a famous passage in Habakkuk, maybe the most famous, or at least one of them. Perhaps you've heard it before. I actually have these words hanging on the hallway in my home. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So Habakkuk writes of starvation. He says, though I'm starving to death, or I will be starving to death, though there's disaster comes upon me, yet what there is, there is joy, there is rejoicing even in disaster. This is a, a, the lesson I think the book of Habakkuk would want, would teach us. This is a lesson, in fact, this man had to learn himself, because that's how he ends his book, but it is not how he started it. So turn back to chapter 1, and we see in verse 2, this prophet lay out his complaints before God. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? It's at the beginning of this book that he is confused, he is dismayed, he is certainly not rejoicing. And yet by the end of this book, he, he is, uh, uh, he, he's expressing this utter delight in God. He's gone from despair to delight because of his exchange with God. It's what's amazing as we study this book is we'll see that his circumstances have not changed. In fact, no, that's not true. His circumstances have changed and they have gotten far worse. So things get worse and he goes from lamenting to joy. How? How is that possible? Well, it's possible because of the central verse in the book of Habakkuk. It's quoted three times in the New Testament. It's chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. So in the midst of trouble and disaster and trial, God says, my righteous ones will do what? They will live because they trust me, because they have faith. And I, I, I know that, that, that some of you come into this room today just based upon two, three hundred of us here today, that some, some of you are suffering. In fact, some, I, know, I know some of your suffering specifically. Some of it, you I don't know. Some of you have been suffering for a while. Some of you have recently received news that have perhaps changed your life forever. Others, others maybe come, are here, and I, if you're not suffering, i just sorry to be, tell you this, but it's on its way. Right? In this world of trouble, we will all suffer. And some of you have received already that late night phone call that changed your life. Some of you have, have received that medical diagnosis or experiencing that crumbling relationship or that financial hardship. Some of you have heard those words that we never want to hear. There's been an accident. I'm afraid it's cancer. You're fired. I don't love you anymore. And, that's, 
At some point, each of us will encounter a suffering, and it will not make sense. D.A. Carson writes, the truth of the matter is that, that all we have to do is live long enough and we will suffer. At some point in our lives, the circumstances will seem to contradict the character of God. They will seem to, to do violence to the promises of God, and it's this prophet who wants to strengthen you for such times. You're not suffering. He would like to prepare you for those times to come. And, and he will do so in an unusual way. Because prophets usually speak to the people on behalf of God. Habakkuk speaks to God on behalf of the people. He has this conversation with God, and we get to eavesdrop on this conversation as he struggles to understand God. The, the, the way to outline Habakkuk is very simple. It begins with Habakkuk complaining to God. He doesn't like the way things are. He says, God, do something. Amazingly, God answers. And God says to him, in a sense, Habakkuk, settle down. Be quiet. Trust me. I've got a plan. Habakkuk hears the plan, and he complains again. And he says, God, I don't like that plan. And God answers again. And he says, in effect, Habakkuk, didn't I tell you to be quiet and trust me? And then we get to chapter 3, and Habakkuk has this amazing idea. I think I'll be quiet and trust him. Right? That's Habakkuk. That's the whole book. Okay? So you complaining, God answers. Complaining, God answers. I think I'll just be quiet and put my faith in God. And this is this, we're going to be on this journey for the next six weeks, this journey from frustration to faith, from confusion to confidence, from disaster to delight. And we begin by seeing this prophet complaining in troubling times. And so let's, let's consider, first of all, Habakkuk's bold lament. You see there in verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you look why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. You see, Habakkuk's living in a day of immorality and greed. He's living in a day of deception and hatred. He's living in a day of injustice and hypocrisy and oppression. This is during the terrible reign of King Jehoiakim from the year 605, uh, 609 to the year 605. And in fact, if you want to learn more about what's going on in Habakkuk's day, maybe for the next six weeks as we work through Habakkuk, you could read Jeremiah who is the contemporary with Habakkuk. And you can read 2 Kings that describes in detail what's happening, that, uh, the details which Habakkuk's getting at. But society is, is, is ripping itself apart. There's not harmony and blessing as God had promised the people of Israel. Instead, the moral fabric of, of this culture is becoming undone. There's violence everywhere, Habakkuk seems to claim. Jeremiah tells us the poor are being terribly oppressed, in particular by the king, that the prophet Uriah has already been assassinated assassinated, and the priests are being induced into adultery, and the judges are all taking bribes on behalf of the rich. One commentator puts it this way, from the political leaders to the common people, everyone seems to have plunged themselves into moral madness. Everyone seems to have forsaken the Lord and his covenant with his people. Everyone seems to be striving for personal pleasure and self-promotion. And when I, when I hear it put in those ways, 
I think, well, this 26-year-old piece of literature actually sounds pretty modern to me. It seems to be a great insight into the land in which you and I live. You see, Habakkuk's living in this day, and, and it's not a good time to be in Judah. And Habakkuk's just sick of it. You see that in verse 3. Why do you make me see all this? I'm sick of it. I can't, right? You see what he's saying? He says, God, I can't even look at this, and I'm a sinner. How can you, you a holy God, how can you put up with this? How, how can you just let this keep going on and on and, and do nothing about it? I don't know if you ever feel this way. Do you ever look around and say, this is just making me sick, to be perfectly honest? Right? That, that, uh, and it makes me sick. As bad as I am, how can God, how can God just let us keep going this way and keep doing this? I mean, look, look at the world. You've got global jihad. You have chlorine gas attacks upon children in Syria. You have this massive migration that's taking place throughout the world. You have sex trafficking that's rampant. You come to our own nation. You have the opioid epidemic. You have the dismissal of marriage. You know, 40% of American children today will go to sleep in a home where their father does not live. 40 plus Two out of five. You have all this racial tension. We have abortion on demand. Sexual morals that have been held for thousands and thousands of years are simply dismissed. And, and not just dismissed, the, the, the perversion is celebrated. And not just celebrated, it's forced upon everyone. And if you don't do business with those who want to celebrate it, we'll run you out of business. There's sexual harassment. There's, there's uh, our political leaders are spending $30,000 on dining sets and 40000 on a phone booth for their office and leaders seem to just be seeking their own fame and their the advance of their own political party and their own profit. We got con men ripping off the naive. And, and then, well, what about the people of God in America? Well, certainly we're doing well. Seems to me the people of God in America are more focused on being comfortable and being uplifted and living our best life now than we are the cause of God. About half the pastors in America reject the gospel, will not preach it. And then you got violence, you got police shootings, you got school shootings, you have church shootings, you have guys driving vans down sidewalks, plowing into people. You ever think, what is happening? What is going on? I'm just sick of it. Can't take it anymore. I, I wonder if that's why like half the best-selling Christian books are on the rapture. Because we're all wondering, when can we leave, right? <laughs> Is it time yet? Can we get out of here? I, I, I just, it's hard to handle. I don't, I don't, some people just stop watching the news. There's all the news is carnage and bloodshed and political tweets. And by the time, by the time that 30 minutes is over, sometimes I think I'm just done. I'm finished. That's why every broadcast, every news broadcast, you watch the news, every, the nightly news, every time it always ends with this, the last the last clip is like Joey who sells chocolate chip cookies to save abandoned cats, right? And the moral of the story is, never mind the gas attacks in Syria and the political scandals. Joey saved a cat. Isn't that great, right? And then you think, okay, maybe I'll stick around for one more day, right? It, it, it's, this, this world is out of control. It's why we lock our doors at night. Why do we have to lock our doors? So the other day, I'm dropping my daughter off for dance class, and we're debating, can we let her walk from the car to the building, or do we actually have to escort her to the door of her dance studio? And we, we wonder, why, why are we living? I'm just tired of it. And Habakkuk says, I'm tired of it, God. 
And he says he wants to know, God, how can you put up with this? How can you tolerate that? That's his cry. Look what he says in verse 2. How long shall I cry for help? You will not hear. Right? Why aren't you doing anything about this? The bad guys are winning. I've been begging you to act. Do something. And you just keep letting it go. And it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. I don't know if you've ever been there where you come to God and you ask and you ask and you ask and you ask. And all you get back is silence. There's no answer. Almost as if no one is home. And Habakkuk says, how long must I pray like this? Because, God, I read your word, and it says you hear prayers, and it says you answer prayers. Ask, and you shall receive. That's the words of Jesus. You have not because you ask not. That's the Bible. And so I'm asking, and how come when I pray, nothing happens? Why do I have to keep praying? How much longer? And, and you see Habakkuk just laying it out, isn't he? And you read this, and to be honest, you, part of you wonders, are you allowed to speak to God like that? Right? He says, why? He says to God, why do you idly look at wrong? Where are you? What are you doing? Why don't you do something? You know what this is called? This is called a lament. A lament is when you come to God with your struggles and, 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 and your questions and your concerns. You know, one-third of the Psalms, 50 Psalms, are laments, just like Habakkuk. The whole book of Job is like 40 chapters of lament. What is going on, God? We even have a whole book in the Bible, Lamentations, that's all about expressing confusion as God's people endure pain and suffering. In fact, even, this is amazing, even the saints in heaven who are before the throne of God, in the presence of God, are asking him, how long, oh God, until you bring justice upon this earth? There's lament throughout Scripture. In fact, you know who else laments? Jesus Christ on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's lamenting. So we find laments throughout Scripture. And I think the lament is God's gift to us to express our hearts in troubled times, to bring our complaints to God, to bring our confusions to God. Let me tell you this morning, it is okay in difficult times to lament. Habakkuk is not rebuked. It is not a sin to lament, but it can be. And so let me tell you how to lament, how Habakkuk teaches us to lament. And this may be helpful for you in the midst of your struggles right now. It may be helpful in the future. There's five principles that Habakkuk teaches us how to lament, how to be faithful in our lamentation. Number one, faithful lamenters speak to God personally, the unfaithful impersonally. And these will come up on the screen. I know they're not in your notes. They're personal. Faithful lamenting is personal. So there's a difference between saying, God, how can you allow? And how can God allow? You hear the difference? God, how can you allow this? That's faithful. But when you start to say, how could God do this? We're we're getting close. See, what, what happens? We're no longer talking to God about our troubles. We're talking about God. When you lament, you come and you speak to God. You speak to him personally. Number two, faithful lamenting trusts God. The unfaithful lamenter doubts God. 
And so the, the lamenter, he puts his trust in God. She puts her trust in God, which is why the, 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 the trouble which you're in is confusing because God is good and God is righteous and God does this and God does that. And yet my life looks like this. And so I'm very confused to how this is working out. And, and, and so it's because you believe that God is good that you're troubled by this. This is why he says there in verse three, why do you tolerate wrong? He says to God, why do you ask God, why do you tolerate wrong? Because he knows God can't tolerate wrong, right? He trusts that God is good. And so when you lament, you, you say, God, I don't understand how you can allow this because you're good and because you do this. You don't come to God and, and you say, God, are you good? Habakkuk doesn't doubt God he trusts God even in his laments. Number three, faithful lamenters question, unfaithful lamenters accuse. Right? So you see he's asking God. These are questions he's bringing them. How long, God? Why, God? What are you doing, God? He's questioning God. He has questions for God. He doesn't come and accuse God. He doesn't say, you're wrong. He doesn't say to God, you've wronged me. He doesn't say, you've done evil. See, when you accuse God, when you say, God, God, you don't know what you're doing, let me just simply suggest that might be arrogant, okay? God, you should come to me for advice next time, okay? No, we don't accuse God. We can question. We can bring our questions. We don't accuse. Number four, the faithful lamenter submits. The unfaithful lamenter rages. Habakkuk is not shaking his fist at heaven. I've heard pastors even say, it's okay to shake your fist in heaven. God's a big boy. He could take it. Do not Shake your fist in heaven. Do not give God a piece of your mind. That is not what's happening here. He is submitting even in the midst of his trouble. It's like, you know, it's like Job. Remember Job? See, Habakkuk's like a mini Job. Um, and, and, and Satan, remember Satan approaches the throne of God. And, and they're, they're in God's throne room. And there's a hundred million angels there. And Satan comes up to God with an accusation, and he says, God, you pay people to worship you. Right? You pay people to love you. And the only reason they praise you, the only reason they obey you, the only reason they follow you is because you bless them and bless them and bless them. But you take away their blessings, you cut their pay off, and they will curse you to your face. And so God says, okay, do what you will. Satan finds the most righteous man on earth, a man named Job, and he takes everything. He takes his wealth, he takes all of his capital, his probably generations of accumulation of wealth, it is all gone. And then he takes his children, all ten of them. And he loses everything. And it's in the midst of that unimaginable tragedy, totally unbeknownst to Job, there's this audience to his suffering. <laughs> Peering over Job's shoulder is a hundred million angels. And Satan and his demonic army and God himself looking into this man to see how he will respond. And Job rips his clothes and he falls on his face and he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. And a hundred million angels erupt, saying, Worthy is the God of Job, of praise and honor and glory. And the devil slithers away, defeated once again. My friends, Job had no idea what was happening. He had no clue. And I'm not saying all of your troubles are accompanied with some divine spectacle, but I am telling you, in the midst of your trouble, you have no idea what God is doing. You have no idea what led up to this. You have no idea where, where God's going to take it. You think that Job in chapter 1 knew he would one day become the Job in chapter 42? He had no idea. Do you think that Job knew that in the midst of all this, what he is doing is foreshadowing the Messiah who was the righteous, perfect man who's upright and followed God and encountered suffering beyond belief at the hands of the devil at the same time abandoned by his friends only to emerge from the other side with a greater family and an obedience to God. Do you think he knew that he was pointing to the Messiah? Had no idea what God was doing. And so, yes, you can lament. You can say, I don't understand. But in your lament, you submit to God in faith. Lastly, the faithful lamenter remains. The unfaithful lamenter leaves. Do not abandon God in your trial. Don't curse God and die. I remember in my greatest struggle, the greatest pain in my life, when Ligger and I, our first child was stillborn, and I, I remember wrestling, and I, I remember God brought me to this point where, he, where I said to him, God, above all, this is the only thing I'm asking for. Don't let me leave you. So I feel my heart going away. I don't want to leave you. The faithful lamenter remains. And so Joe, uh, Habakkuk teaches us how to lament. But what's amazing, he shows us, also, what to lament, right? It's, listen, because it's okay to lament about your life and the circumstances. Job does that. Psalms do it. Even Jesus does that. But that's not what Habakkuk's lamenting about. He's lamenting about the sinfulness of his people, right? It's not about his life. He's lamenting about his culture, his country. And so he prays to God, God, will you not revive us? Will you, will you bring about repentance? Because Israel... Oh, was, was, was tasked by God to show the world what God was like. Right? That's, that's their job. Their job was to image forth to the world who God is like and to, to receive his blessings, and therefore the world will come and, and come and worship this God. God chose Israel not for this, uh, in, in, in forsaking the other nations, but for, to bless the other nations through the seed of Abraham that all nations will be blessed, God says. And so live like me, show the world what I'm like, and they'll come and worship me too. But instead of unity and kindness and sacrifice and love and forgiveness and compassion, they're living with strife and injustice and greed and conflict and violence and all the rest. And the kings are not not leading his people. He's enslaving his people so he could get new walls in his palace. The priests are not calling people to repentance. They're actually endorsing sin. They're saying this thing, which God calls a perversion, is actually good. We all should do it. The judges are not ruling for the law. They're taking bribes on behalf of the rich. And Habakkuk's torn up about it. He laments about it. And he says, God, do you understand they are dragging your name through the mud? Why won't you do something? So what, see that, that raises, this is where it hit me when I'm studying Habakkuk. What do you pray for? This last week, what did you pray for? What did you ask God for? 
Because I think often our prayers are almost totally predominated by our own needs and wants. God, do this for me. God, do this for me. And then, of course, the people in our sphere. God, do this for this person I love and do this for this person I love. And we say, God, more blessings, please. Take away the hardship, please. And there's nothing wrong to pray with about any of those. But do your prayers ever look like Habakkuk's? Do you ever cry out, God, why, why do so many people live in comfort and ease? There's, there's 100 million children in this world today that do not have a clean cup of water to drink. I don't get that. Why? You ever cry out, how long must I cry to you, God, while 20% of American babies are terminated in their mother's womb and don't seem like you're doing much about it? Right? Why, why, God, why are there so many orphans in this world? Why are there 130 children in Frederick County in foster care and there are only 30 families that are willing to care for them? Where are your people, God? Right? When's the last time your heart was broken for the, for the world and the honor of God in it? Because it's easy to be preoccupied ourselves. But I wonder, are we, con- are we concerned about God's glory? Are you, are, you, are you concerned about his honor of God? This is what Habakkuk's crying. Don't you see we are defaming you, God? Why don't you do something? Well, God, of course, will answer, won't he? He says, I, I am doing something. I'm going to do something. He, in fact, agrees with Habakkuk's analysis that God's law is being perverted, that righteousness is being abused, that the land is corrupt. And so he answers Habakkuk, but God's answer is not what Habakkuk expected and certainly not what he wanted. So consider, secondly, God's troubling providence. Look in verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. So God says, Habakkuk, you should should wonder, you should be astonished because I am working. I am going to respond to your concerns. But my response is so far beyond your expectations, it's unbelievable. It's unthinkable, in fact. He gives us a hint in verse 5. He says, look among the nations and see. In other words, the solution to your problem is not going to come from within the borders of Judah, but it's going to come from outside of it. He goes on to tell us exactly what he's referring to in verse 6. For behold, I am raising up Chaldeans, up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march to the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. These, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. We know them as the Babylonians. This is a powerful nation that will emerge in the year 620 B.C. and really rule the, the known world there for about 80 years until they're defeated by Persia in around 540 B.C. And so, so I'm raising that up. These people are coming for you. This is what God did with Israel in the north 130 years later. Now they're committing the same sin. So this is what God will do with Judah in the south. This is what God warned in Deuteronomy 28 when he brought them into the promised land. He says, by the way, if you do not obey me, I'm sending a foreign nation that will come against you. This is what he showed already. This is what he's promised. But Habakkuk was not expecting this. This is not what he was praying for. He not only lived during the reign of Jehoiakim, he also lived during the reign of King Josiah, Jehoiakim's father. And King Josiah brought about great and amazing revival to the people of Judah. And this is clearly what he's praying for. Revive us again, O Lord. Send your spirit upon us. But instead of revival, God sends a conqueror. Instead of mercy, he sends judgment. And he does so from the hands of the Babylonians. In fact, God doesn't simply just say, I'm sending them. He goes on to describe them. And in the description of 
the Babylonians, we see that God's judgment is fierce. Imagine if these people were coming for you. Verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. An army uncertain will advance slowly and strategically. That will allow you to retreat. These men are not uncertain of victory. They charge into battle. They seize what is not their own. They spread over the earth, bringing their brutality, which is described in verse 7. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. In other words, you cannot outrun them. They will chase you down, God says. They're like evening wolves. That is, a wolf who has not eaten in a while, and you throw a sheep in front of them. That's what these men are like. They're like the devouring vulture. There is no negotiation with them. There is no reasoning with them. They come to kill and destroy. He says they're dreaded and fearsome. You ever see uh, the Lord of the Rings? Have you ever seen that movie? Remember the orcs that come out of the center of the earth? That's the Babylonians, okay? There is no reasoning with them. They just come to conquer and destroy. As you see in verse 9, they all come for violence. Why are they coming? Just to do violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like the sin. They're violent men. Right? They have no sympathy for human suffering. Verse 10, at kings they scoff. At rulers they laugh. They laugh in every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. And then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. There's nothing to stop them, God says. No kings, no fortress, no army will stop them. These are idolatrous people who worship their own might. All they worship is the tip of their spear, and they are coming for you. The question is, why does God give such a description of them? Why not just simply say, hey, I'm sending the Babylonians? Why does he go on to describe them in such vivid and fearful detail? I think he does for the same reason Jesus describes hell over and over again, I think about 50 times, in order to warn us, in order that we might flee, in order that we might turn, in order that we might repent while there is still time. See, God teaches us that his judgment is fierce. This, of course, this judgment, as is any judgment we find in in the Bible, is a pointer to the ultimate judgment in which all will stand before one day if they are outside of Christ and his mercy. We also see, secondly, in God's response, that God's goal is faithfulness. Please understand that this should prove once and for all that God is not primarily committed to your comfort. He is not primarily committed to your security. He is not primarily committed so that you might have your best life now or that he might be a positive and encouraging role in your life. He wants you to be faithful. He wants his people to be faithful. And he will go to dramatic means, including removing comfort and security in order to get his people to be faithful. Now, of course, the Jews didn't believe this would happen. In the midst of their immorality, they're very optimistic. Jeremiah is very clear about this. In fact, he says, many were going around saying, he will do nothing. No harm will come to us. We will never see sword or famine. In other words, they concluded we are God's favored people, right? We're the good guys. We may have our troubles, but of all the nations in the world, we're clearly the best. 
And so God will just keep blessing us and things will keep moving forward and our children will have it better off than we had it and their children will have it better off than they and things, we're very, very optimistic. Things will just keep on moving. We're the favored people. And, and therefore, this, the destruction of their nation is inconceivable, which is, I think, why God uses the plural back up in verse 5. You see, he says, for I am doing a work in your days. That's plural. Not Habakkuk. You, Judah. That you, Judah, would not believe if you were told. Right? They're not going to believe this, God says, because they're, they're the good guys. We're the religious guys. We're God's country. We're the best nation on earth. Therefore, no judgment can come upon us. And I'm afraid this attitude is very modern. So may I say to my fellow Americans, do we consider ourselves in this world to be the good guys? Do we consider ourselves to be the favored people of God? I tell you, Judah had that same attitude. That yes, you just heard, you would have heard throughout Judah. And judgment was coming if they would not repent. I am no prophet. I bring no prophetic utterance to you today. I simply tell you the word of God that judgment comes upon sinful nations. We should be warned. And not just us, but how many individuals say, I'm the good guy. Right? I'm better than this person. I'm okay. God's okay. God's indifferent with my sin. I think, I hope this, this passage would be a warning to us. As we see, God's goal is your faithfulness, not your comfort, not your security, not your economic prosperity, but your obedience to him. We also see that God's patience is kind. We see God's reign is good. Perhaps we'll return to those ideas at a later time, but I see the clock and our time is running short. So let me say lastly that God's ways are inscrutable. They're mysterious. His plans, God's plans, almost never seem to make sense. Right? Habakkuk says he understands that salvation comes from Israel. That's what God has promised. Through the seed of Abraham shall blessings to all of the world come. And so we, we are here, chosen by God to bless the nations, and yet we are a corrupt and evil people, Habakkuk says. God says, okay, I have a solution. I'm going to raise up a tyrannical people. They're going to conquer you and forcibly remove you from the promised land. And we'll see next week that Habakkuk will have a response. And his response goes like this. How can that be a solution? We're supposed to bring the truth of God to the nations, and your solution to our sin is to destroy this nation. Right? And they would never self-rule again, at least through, up through the days of Jesus and on and on. So how's that a solution? Must have been in Habakkuk's mind. This is why God says, you, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. But now we can see 700 years later, you, you know what was in every city throughout Rome? Jews. Synagogues. And because synagogues god fears Gentiles who had come to worship for Yahweh. Because of this exile. Now, of course, many people would return, but most would not, and they would spread all over the world, and the gospel begins to go, and the missionaries, where do they go to? They go to the synagogues in places like Rome and Antioch and Ephesus, places far from the promised land. There are Jews there, and God fears they're ready to receive the gospel, and God had sent them 700 years earlier. His ways are inscrutable. They're mysterious. 
They never make sense to us in the middle of it. Think about Joseph, who's sold into slavery, forgotten in prison, and 20 years later, miraculously, or by the hand of God, he's in a position to keep his family alive through this incredible famine, and he could look back and see, and he will testify, every single thing that went wrong happened to me to bring me to this point. And I would never have seen it 20 years earlier. It's not just in the Bible. I mean, you think, let's look at the history of the church. Think about China, for instance, in 1949 or 48, when the communists took over, they kicked out all the missionaries that had been laboring there for hundreds, a uh, hundred years and spreading the gospel. And all, every single one of them was kicked out of China. And they must have said at that time, don't you think, God, why would you let this happen? We've given everything to these people. We're, we're, we're spreading the gospel. God, are you abandoning China? And yet, because the missionaries left, the Chinese Christian leaders saw no alternative but to lead themselves. And 70 years later, the fastest growing Christian movement is in China. They would have never have seen it. God works in inscrutable ways. He says, if I told you, you wouldn't believe. Habakkuk says, God, what's going on? God says, if I told you, you wouldn't understand. Habakkuk will go on and say, tell me anyway. And God says, okay, here's the plan. And Habakkuk will say, I don't understand. I don't get it. I was teaching this passage to my children last night, and the illustration I used, maybe it be helpful with you, is if you have a two-year-old, and that two-year-old finds a steak knife, what do you do with a steak knife? Well, you take it from the... Child, right? I should write a book on parenting, okay? So you take the steak knife from the child. Now, what does the child do in response? The child screams and yells, right? Because they want the steak knife. In fact, over everything in the world at that moment, they want to play with the steak knife. It's pointy, it's shiny, that's what they want, and they take it from them. And so what do you do? You grab the child, you sit them down, and say, let me explain this to you. Do you understand the word impaling, right? Okay? They do not. They don't get it. They don't understand how their father, who is a kind and good man, who's supposed to take care of them, is now taking from them the very thing that's bringing them joy. How can that, how can, how does that work? I want to eat the cookie. I'm sorry, son, you can't eat the cookie. Why? I want, above all things, I want to eat the cookie right now. Well, let me explain to you nutrition. Do you understand calories come from carbohydrates and fat and protein? No, they don't. They don't get that. God says, even if I told you, you won't understand You need to trust me because we're the two-year-olds, aren't we? God works in unbelievable ways, and sometimes those ways are painful. Sometimes those ways are God taking from you the thing you most desperately want. Sometimes those ways are scary. And everything you know about God and everything you understand about the promises of God does not make sense in light of what's happening in your life. And he says, do you trust me? Life will not go according to your plan. Therefore, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, for God's ways are inscrutable. In fact, it was 700 years later, that Paul was outside the promised land, he's outside Judah, and he was in a synagogue in Antioch that was there because God took the people forcibly out by the Babylonians. And in Acts 13, he says, God raised Jesus from the dead. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Listen to what the prophet said. 
Look, there's a quote to Habakkuk 1.5, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. So, so the, Paul says the principle that God shared with Habakkuk, he said, my purpose is to, is, uh, I'm going to judge my people and through this violent oppressor, Paul says that points us to Jesus. Right? Can, because if you lived in the day of Jesus, the, they weren't much better than they were in, Jew, in, in the time of Habakkuk. And if you were in Jesus' day, and maybe many Jews prayed this in this day, just like Habakkuk, they might have prayed, God, do you not see the violence that's taking place? Do you not see the oppression that is upon us? Do you not see that justice is, is wronged and there's sin and there's greed and the religious people are all corrupt? God, what will you do? Why don't you do something, God? And God would have answered you at that time, don't worry, I have a plan. I'm going to kill my son. And you would have said, what? What, what are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense. How does, how does that solve our problem? How does that work? Right? If I told you, you would not believe. And in fact, on the cross, do you not think that the apostles, were they not praying? I mean, we don't have any record, but can, come on. They must have been praying, God, you see the violence that's happening to your son. Do you see how justice is being perverted and six trials all perverting justice? God, why do you make us look upon this iniquity? Why do you tolerate this wrong? This doesn't make sense to us, God. What are you doing? What are you doing? And God's answer is, I am redeeming you. I am saving you from your sin." by my son bearing all of my justice. And just as I let Babylon off their leash so they could pounce upon the people of Judah, so I will let Rome off its leash so it may pounce upon the son of Judah that you might be saved. That he would take all this judgment that we see in this passage that is due for us sinners, and he puts that upon himself that we sinners can receive mercy. I pray you have received that mercy. That Christ has died to give you mercy. He rose from the dead to give you mercy. God does not look on favor with you because you are good and righteous. If he looks on favor on you and all, it is because you are found in Christ, who is only one good and righteous. And it's that goodness and that righteousness that we want to celebrate in this meal. And we celebrate through this supper meal God's inscrutable ways that brought our redemption. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful that it teaches us that you are in control. And that control sometimes is utterly confusing. And it causes us to cry out. And yet, even in the midst of our laments, may we trust you. What an advantage we have to Habakkuk who did not see the Messiah coming, who did not see him dying, did not see him being raised from the dead, as we do, as we now see in this meal. And so help us, Father, to find our joy, find our hope, and to find our faith strengthened as we are reminded through these means in which you have given us, this sacrament of the death and resurrection of our Lord. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.